Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but that same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And the searcher of hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking, because the Spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all this? If God is for us, who is against us? God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How then will he not, with him, freely give all things to us? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who declares them in the right. Who is going to condemn? It is the Messiah Jesus who has died, or rather has been raised, who is at God's right hand and who also prays in our behalf. Who shall separate us from the Messiah's love? Suffering or hardship, persecution, famine or nakedness, danger or sword. As the Bible says, because of you, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep destined for slaughter. No, in all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm the senior pastor here at Genesis. Uh, if this is your first time, yay. If this is your hundredth time, yay. Uh, love that you're here. Uh, before I get into the message, uh, a quick word about our baptism that's happening on August 20th. Uh, as a church, we're going to gather here for worship, and then at about noon, we're going to go to Theo Worth Beach, where we had our picnic, and we're going to have a believer baptism. And I want to make a differentiation between, uh, you know, we do infant baptisms here, we do believer baptisms, and the difference between those two is that in an, in an infant baptism, we baptize that child into the family of God within the church. And uh, we baptize them in the Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And our believer baptism is for those of you who have said yes to following Jesus. And uh, it is a sacrament in our denomination. We have two sacraments, the Eucharist and baptism. And so that means that we believe that when we come into the waters for baptism, yes, it is a symbol of us dying to our sin and being raised by God with Jesus into forgiveness. But it's also because it's a sacrament, it is a powerful um, ordinary thing, water and sun and breath that gets transformed into, it points to a sacred thing, which is God's forgiveness of us. And God meets us there in some mysterious way. So if you want to get baptized, uh, I would love to invite you. Uh, after the service, we're going to have a really short meeting, about five or 10 minutes, right in the back of the auditorium. So if you have kids, go get your kids, come back, meet me back there, and um, we'll go through what it means to be baptized. Deal? All right, I want to invite the rest of you to join us there, too. We're going to have bring your own lunch at noon, and then after uh, lunch, we will do our baptism. So I want to pray before I dive into this sermon. 
God, thank you uh, for meeting us here, for um, meeting us everywhere that we are. We don't have to beg you to be there. You're already there. Thanks for the new beginnings that you bring into our lives. In your name, amen. All right, well, this passage, Romans 8, starts with a whisper and ends with a kind of shout. In the same way, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray as we ought to. Can I get an amen on that? So this is the writer of most of the New Testament saying, hey, when it comes to prayer, we don't really have a clue. I mean, hopefully you notice that your shoulders have been like this, and then when you hear something like that, you go, all right. Paul didn't really know how to pray. I don't really know how to pray. (laughs) We're okay. We're going to make it. And then he says this thing because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So this is not an all-play question, but it is a question to ponder. How close do you let yourself get to your own weakness? <laughs> Neither do I, Katie. Right in the beginning of the passage, I am slammed with my own um, uh, struggle that I, I, really, I, I really don't like to get very close to my weakness. I don't like to show my... I mean, here's the deal. True confession. People have told me, Steve, I appreciate that you're vulnerable in your writing and your preaching. And the truth is, I, I thank you for that. But the other truth is that from the standpoint of my preaching and my writing, I decide what it is that I let you know. <laughs> there is a buffer. And there should be a buffer. I shouldn't tell you everything. Thank you, Joe. But when it comes to God, who meets me in my weakness, I can. And even though I can, it doesn't mean that I do. And so we get this beautiful encouragement from Paul that says, even though we don't know how to pray as we ought, even for ourselves, the Spirit meets us in our inability. And the Spirit prays for us with groans that are too deep for words. Have you ever been at a time in your life, maybe after a tragic loss or a really heartbreaking ending, and you find yourself sort of praying, but you have no words? It's just kind of a, maybe it's even an inaudible kind of groaning. The Spirit, we read from Paul, who again wrote most of the New Testament, meets us in that weakness. And I think that is really good news. Amen? And here's a little word. Some of you uh, pray for others, right? Some of you, you know, God brings someone to mind and you pray for them, maybe they're going through uh, surgery, or maybe they're going through a hard time, maybe they've lost their job, maybe they're you know, on their trip from here to there, and you're praying for their safety. Um, have you ever experienced 
the kind of weight of, of starting to pray for those people. And, and you just say, and Lord, and you use the word just a lot. You ever, you ever notice that? Lord, just help them in their journey and just meet them where they're at. And I just pray that you just would just, you know, it's sort of hilarious. Um, we do that. And because we don't know how to pray as we ought, it's totally fine. But I want to give you another way of praying for people if you feel like your words just like you don't have them. Just imagine. So imagine the person, imagine their face, their eyes. Then just imagine you're walking with them into a room where Jesus is. And then you just present them to Jesus without words. And then you back away from the room because you don't know really what they need. You might know a little bit, but Jesus really does know what they need. And that's a way to pray for people that is way, you're, you're still going to carry the burden of that person and what they're going through, but you don't need to make up all the words. You know what I mean? And Lord, just, I prayed that I just, and then all of a sudden you're at your laundry list and, and you're, um, you're picking up your kids in your mind all of a sudden and you've lost it. And the searcher of hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking. The Bible has a lot of names for God, Father, the Almighty, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as the Father who sent me. I like that. In Romans, most of the time, it's God's name is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But in this passage, God is the searcher of hearts. Now that can be comforting, Charlie sees where I'm going. <laughs> or it can be terrifying. So here's an all-play question. Why would you be terrified that God is the searcher of hearts? Why would that be a terrifying thing? Because you're hiding. Is that Greg? Thanks, Greg. Boom from the songwriter, which, by the way, was a sweet blues song. Did anyone notice that? I mean, that was, we were like, I mean, I, Greg, you were there. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we can edit that part out, right? We won't. Why would you be terrified that God is called the searcher of hearts? Because we're ashamed. A flashlight in the darker corner. Well, actually, according to N.T. Wright, uh, the word in the Greek comes from a root word which does suggest someone lighting a torch and going slowly around a large, dark room full of all sorts of things, looking for something in particular. So go to seminary, Charlie. Or teach seminary, maybe. <laughs> torch. Unless you're in the UK, where a torch would be a flashlight. Hand me a torch. Right, Sally? Am I right? I'm right, right? I'm not wrong. Okay. All right, we're, st we're still not there, though. Why, why, would, why, why would we be terrified if God is the searcher of hearts? We have trust issues. That is very, very, very close. We somehow think he didn't know already. Thank you, Katie. 
We <laughs> Micah for the win. We don't get to decide how vulnerable you are because God sees it. Bob? There are things in there that I don't even want to see, Bob said. Now, we're assuming that the searcher of hearts is going to find something, and that searcher of hearts is going to be like, up until now. I thought you were a pretty decent fellow. But now. And the truth found in the scriptures about God, and at the end of this passage in particular, is that there is absolutely nothing that would separate God's love from us. So perhaps we're terrified because we have a really, really faulty picture of God. And what if we actually believed that there was nothing that could separate us from God's love. Not your worst secret. Not the thing that you're thinking about doing that no one knows. That God could look at that with the torch into the darkest recesses, maybe where you don't even know it exists, and say, not even that separates you from my love. Luke 15, this one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, tells three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And the common denominator in all of those stories, uh, especially the lost coin, the lost, when this woman loses the coin, the picture is that she's sweeping and sweeping and sweeping and sweeping, looking for that lost coin. And that is a picture of God that God never stops looking for you and for me. And so any picture that we have of God that says that God can find something deep in the deep, dark recesses of our heart and then turn away from us is wrong. And even Jesus' death on the cross doesn't buy God's love back for us. It reveals the love that never left. And this is a huge, huge difference. If you believe that the Bible teaches that God couldn't love us until Jesus died on the cross, that is actually written nowhere in the Scriptures. The truth is that God became a human and died on the cross to show us that God's love never left us in the first place. And then we get to this phrase, we know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And let's just agree on the front end, that sounds like something a clueless pastor might say. Or someone that's really thoughtless when you tell them something that happened to you that really hurts. And they say something like, well, they wouldn't say it like that. They would say, I know. But you got to remember, it's all part of God's plan. Um, I, I'm not going to assume that, that that doesn't comfort someone. Maybe that comforts someone. I think, in my experience, that doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort, that this dark, terrible, disastrous thing that happened to you was somehow part of God's plan, that God caused it. 
So let's dive into what this phrase means. The word for good, agathos, is different than the word that Paul could have used, kalos. Kalos means beautiful to look at. It means, this is not the word that Paul used, so the other word, kalos, which he didn't use, means the good that is gorgeous, the good that walks into a room and all eyes turn and go, yes, right? This good, agathos, means it's beneficial, it's, use, it's useful, it's upright. And the word for works is the word synergos, is where we get our word synergy. And it literally means uh, a fellow worker, a companion in the work. So you could really, the, the better translation for this is we know, in fact, that no matter what dark, terrible, evil, awful thing happens to you, oh, that was you? Wow, it sounded like it came from back there. No matter what evil, dark, terrible, disastrous thing happened to you, God gets in there with you as a fellow worker, trying to see what redemption that can happen in it. I don't think this means God causes all things. I think it means that God takes, God meets you in that awful. And as a fellow worker, synergos, God brings something beneficial or useful out of it somehow in some way. And that isn't meant to diminish the pain that you feel about it. And uh, even, even having said that, we don't really believe that, right? We're not really convinced that God works all things together for good. So remember, Paul wrote it. And I want to just remind you of a few things that Paul went through. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. He writes, five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And beside all those things, also, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. So when Paul writes that God can somehow work these terrible, awful, disastrous things into something good because God meets us in that awful and creates something else. Paul is not a clueless pastor that has gone through nothing. Paul's been through some of the deep, deep struggle, and he still says that. So that might be something for you just to sit with. And like the psalmist, you might say, I still don't buy it. Take that to prayer. I still don't buy it. That's okay. One of the things in, in like one of the scriptural sort of tools in prayer that the things that you really, really love that scriptures say and the things that you really, really are confused by or hate that scriptures say, those are the things you should bring to God in prayer. <laughs> so you have your homework. And then we get to this verse. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son, 
so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what does that sound like? That's an all-play question. Predestination. What does that mean, Charlie? Because you're a seminarian now. Actually, your wife is, but go ahead. Yeah, that God chose some to be followers. And so let's just say we could like turn off the lights in here and then the real followers of Christ that God chose before the foundation of the world would turn red or maybe blue, let's say blue or white. And the rest of us would turn red because it was totally up to God, not you. No choice that you made. And that, it really sounds like it says that, right? And some of you were taught that, that that's what it, that's what it says. But if it really said that, then, this, then the Bible has some problems with that view. Like, even if you, like, okay, that's good or bad. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, that means everyone, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. So the word for everyone literally does mean everyone, not just the predestined. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all, the word for all means all, to come to repentance. So it must mean something else. It can't mean that God picked like first grade recess on a kickball team. I want these people and not these people. I think what Paul is saying is that at the end of the day, even for those of us who choose Jesus, you, you need to know that God invited us to choose Jesus, that God reached out to us, that God looked for us, God searched for us, and that is God's sovereignty, that God looks for all of us so that we don't even, like we can't feel all noble that, well, I chose Jesus. God chose you, and I responded to that. So then we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for all of us. Again, the word for all means. And that's a word that Christians need to get a little better at, don't you think? <laughs> How then will he not with him freely give all things to us? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who declares them in the right. Who is going to condemn it is the Messiah Jesus who's died, or rather has been raised. And who shall separate us from the, from the Messiah's love? So we get to this, this phrase, if God is for us. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Right? Because even 20 minutes into this message, you're still not convinced that God is for you. It's really easy for you to think that God might be for someone else, even for someone that you don't even really like. Well, God must be for them. To believe that God is for you is one of the craziest, most radical steps of faith that you can do. And you'll have to do it again and again and again and again. That God is for you, not against you. So if you're struggling with that, you got to remember, if Jesus was the picture of who God is, here are a few people that Jesus was for, according to the Gospels. He was for a woman caught in adultery. He was for a person who exploited the poor out of their money named Zacchaeus. 
He was for the 5,000 men plus their families who were starving because the taxation rate was 90%. So he fed them all from five loaves of bread and two small fish. And he was for the people like Zacchaeus, who was part of that 90% taxation rate. He was for a person named Judas who would eventually betray him. He was for a Roman centurion whose servant was dying. And remember, the Romans were oppressing his people. He was for a thief being crucified next to him on the cross. He was for a woman who was possessed by seven demons, Mary Magdalene. Seven, y'all. He was for the person whose ear was cut off by one of his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And he was also for the disciple who cut the guy's ear off and then who later denied even knowing him. He was for a guy named Saul who murdered and threatened to exterminate all followers of Jesus who later became Paul who wrote this verse. So who are you to say that God is not for you? God is for you and not against you. And that needs to sink in with a kind of grace, a kind of supernatural way, because we are just so convinced that God is not for us. So the verses that immediately precede this long passage that started with a whisper and ends with a shout that no one can separate us from God's love gives us some hope because it names what reality is before we even get to this. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So starting in verse 22 of Romans 8, we read this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present moment. Anyone feel that these days? Groaning. When will things be made right? Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So that's the, this thing like we groan saying that the things are not as they should be and that I am not as I should be and that the world is not as it should be. We groan as we wait. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. So the prophetic call to the followers of Jesus in 2017, when it seems like we are groaning as in the pains of childbirth, like when will this thing be made right? And when will people understand that God is for them? The prophetic word is that we stand in that hope that God is for us and we wait. Now, because none of us are experts at waiting, we need to go back to the top of the verse and remember that it's God who helps us in our weakness because the Spirit prays for us with groans that are inaudible. Amen? So people of Genesis and followers of Jesus all around the world, remember, 
that God is for you and not against you. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from God's love. Amen?